0: you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 6 we're looking at verses 1 through 14, the entirety of the chapter there Amos chapter 6. Uh, while you're turning there if you're a guest with us we'd love it if you'd go to our website veritasdaton.org/ connect and fill out a digital connect card there um, that's a good way for you to uh, get connected with what God is doing here in our church family, um, and uh, for us to get to know a little bit about you, and and, uh, perhaps get together and and chat about what the Lord is doing in your life, and how um, the story uh, of Veritas might intersect with your story. Also, uh, there's a a place uh, for prayer requests on that Connect card in in our uh, website there, and and we'd love uh, for you to share just some ways that we can be praying for you. We'd love to to be able to pray for you this week. We count it an honor to be able to do so. All right, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we're continually making our way through the book of Amos. And here we are, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Listen to the word of God with reverence and joy. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calnah and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of Philistines. Are you better? Then these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence." Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile in the revelry Of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declared the Lord the God of hosts. I abhor pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there anyone still with you? He shall say no, and he shall say, Silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. The horses run on rocks. Does one plough there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood, O you who rejoice in load a bar. O who say Have we not by our own strength captured carnaim for ourselves? Behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Hamath to the brook of Ereba. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you open our eyes now to behold wondrous things in your word would you take this sermon which is hay and stubble would you by the power and presence of your spirit ignite it and by it ignite our hearts in conviction of sin and in passion for your glory pray now in Jesus name amen you can have a seat well as I'm sure you would agree the Crusades were a, a horrible distortion of Christianity. Crusades, of course, were a series of attacks, battles, wars that were initiated and sometimes directed by the medieval Latin Church. And their goal in their, their aim was to take by force lands under Islamic rule. And in their pursuits, these so-called uh, Christian armies of Christian nations. merciless and brutal in battle. And now legend tells us of a a, a rather peculiar practice in those days for soldiers and mercenaries in those armies. They were required to be baptized, and uh, yet it's said that when they were baptized, it was also required that these baptismal candidates were to hold their right hands out of the water while gripping their swords. It was a sign that while they were submitting themselves, supposedly submitting themselves to Christ, they wanted their hands and their their swords to be free from any obligation to submit to Christ. They They wanted to be free to do what they felt necessary in battle without having to question what Christ might say about the matter. And of course, you know, we very well might hear something like that and and scoff at such a practice saying, well, a true disciple of Christ withholds nothing from Christ. I think a better question to ask for us might be what it is we were, as it were, holding out, withholding from the water's of baptism? What, what is it that we're continually seeking to withhold from the lordship of Jesus Christ? What is it that we want to keep free from any obligation to submit to Christ? In his great book, Good News to the Poor, Tim Chester suggests that for many Western Christians, it's our wallets, it's our, our wealth, it's our, our spending and consuming habits, it's our lifestyle choices, our belongings, and what we do with them. And now, as we turn to Amos chapter 6 this morning, we find a people much like us in that respect. You know, they were a particularly affluent society. They were living in times of prosperity and success. The nation of Assyria to the north was weakening, and that gave them times of peace, and they were, so, they were able to, to bolster up their, their military and, and expand their territory. That gave them opportunities to uh, devote themselves to certain innovative economic and and, and cultural pursuits. They were able to amass a great deal of wealth, which enabled them to live lives of luxury and comfort, self-indulgence and decadence. And yet in the midst of all this, they failed to consider what the Lord God might say, what, what He might have to say about their lifestyles their spending habits their consuming habits their practices of of consumption they as it were with, were withholding their wallets their homes their eating habits their clothing purchases and the like from the lordship of god and so unless they repent the lord says the coming day of the lord would inevitably be a day of doom and darkness for them and now we much like god's people in 8th century bc here would do well to consider how we use our wallets and our wealth. We would do well to consider the the coming day of the Lord when we'll stand before the living God and give an account for our lives, our spending habits, our practices of consumption. We would do well to consider the ways in which we might be serving money and things rather than the living God from whom those blessings come. The big idea that we find here is that the coming judgment should wake us up to the dangers of self indulgence. We'll explore that by looking at the dangers of decadence in verses 1 to 7, and then the, the declaration of doom in verses 8 to 14. Now, first, we see the dangers of decadence. Amos begins in this chapter by saying, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. So here, in a kind of interesting spot in the, in the book, he, he rebukes not only Israel, but he rebukes Judah as well. Judah are those in Zion, and then Israel are those on the mountain of Samaria. But then he gets, that, that's more generalized than, than we see typically in the book, but then he gets more specific in the latter half of the verse when he addresses the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. The notable men here are the sort of powerful elite in Israel. Israel, they're the, the wealthy ruling class, they're the ones to whom the, the common people of Israel and the poor in Israel would come for advice and help and, and meeting needs. And um, not only are they wealthy and elite in just any old nation, in a sort of parody, Israel, uh, Amos calls Israel and Judah the first of the nations. This, uh, this language of being first is going to come up again. But here in calling them the, the first of the nations, he's in essence calling them the, the greatest nation in the world, which might sound familiar to you. But he, he's, he's kind of mocking them. But indeed, in, in, in ways, they were, they were a great nation in worldly terms. They had uh, successful militaries, booming economies. They were, in worldly terms, great. Then Amos tries to knock them back down to size when he says, pass over to Calna and see. From there, go to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory better than your territory? Oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. In other words, he's saying, you're not any better than any other nation. Those nations have had days of prosperity and success much the same as you, and, and, and they've been defeated just like you'll be. Don't think that you're immune to disaster. You you think that you're immune to disaster because of your success, but you're wrong. Then in verses 4 to 7, he goes on. And a second oracle to to describe the decadent living of the, the powerful elites here. He says that they're those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs of the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. See, they're living lives of leisure, sprawling out on their... Ivory beds and their down couches. They eat in abundance the, the finest meats in a day when meat at all was a luxury. Instead of, of singing and creating music for the honor of the Lord, like David, they sing songs and create music music for their own amusement. And drinking wine. They don't even bother with cups. They, they have wine in abundance, and they're trying to get their drink on. so they bring out the bowls. Any, any trace of restraint or moderation is gone. And their cosmetics literally says that they have the first oils, which means that they have the choicest cosmetics, you know, the best lotions and soaps and shampoos and uh, essential oils and all that stuff. And uh, they're, they're living it up. They're living it up, big time. living self-indulgent, lifestyles, living lives of decadence. All the while, the Lord says they're, that they're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. They're not, they're not grieved over the sin of Israel. And so the notable men who are of the first of the nations and who use the first of oils, verse 7, will be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. You know, their predicament reminds me of a story I came across not too long ago of a ship in 1860 traveling from Panama to the United States. And uh, the ship sank. 400 people lost their lives. Well, aboard the ship, one of the passengers, he was a very successful businessman. He had, uh, uh, he had uh, up to uh, 200 pounds of gold on the ship. And uh, in an effort to try to keep as much of his wealth as he can, he straps as much gold to himself as, as possible with the bright idea that he could strap it on, jump into the ocean, swim to safety, and keep his wealth. Obviously, his plan didn't quite work. The weight of his gold caused him to sink to his watery grave in the Caribbean. Well, for Israel, their love of things, of wealth, of self-indulgence, of self-indulgence is ultimately leading to their doom. And Now, as, as, as we reflect on this text, I, I fear that we might too easily... And too quickly excuse ourselves from Amos's charges. After all, we might think this is a this is a prophetic word to those, uh, you know, those in the upper echelons of society. Uh, this is a the, the, a word to the you know the dreaded one percent, the billionaires and millionaires of the world. For us ordinary folk, we're not as susceptible to the same kinds of dangers. That's a very normal way of thinking, you know. I don't think anyone kind of naturally thinks of themselves as as rich. Rich people are typically just those who make more than we do. And yet, we have to ask ourselves, is that truly the case? Is that truly the case? Tim Chester, uh, he helps put it in proper perspective in his book when he asks this. He says, how many taps do you have in your house providing clean water, hot and cold? Remember to include your washing machine if you have one and any outside taps for your garden. If your answer is one or more, then you are among the richest seventh of the world's population in economic terms. And David Platt, he puts it similarly in his book, Radically. says, I don't always think of myself as rich, and I'm guessing that you may not think of yourself as rich either. But the reality is, if you and I have running water, shelter over our heads, clothes to wear, food to eat, and some means of transportation, then we are in the top 15% of the world's people for wealth. Now listen, that doesn't even include, that doesn't even take into account the luxuries we afford ourselves in iPhones and $4 lattes we we might make a little game of it if you know uh jeff foxworthy his you might be a redneck jokes well you might be rich if you can set the temperature in your house you you might be rich if you have an appliance that washes your dishes for you 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 might be rich if you have a little uh device in your house named Alexa or Google or something that, that you can have them order things on the internet for you by just telling them to do it. You might, you, you I, I, we could go on here, but friends, the majority of us in this room are rich beyond imagination compared to the majority of the people in this world. And in fact, I'd be willing to bet that the average lifestyle of those of us in this room would amaze the wealthy elite of 8th century Israel. Our decadence very well might put theirs to shame. And now listen, I'm not saying that being wealthy is inherently sinful. I'm not saying that we ought to, you know, take vows of poverty, and give ourselves to, to lives of extreme asceticism. As the Apostle Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 6, 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, that text contains an important charge and warning for, for wealthy Christians, but it also shows us it's not necessarily a sin to be rich, and it's not even necessarily a sin to enjoy what riches provide, since God is the one who provides us with everything to enjoy. And yet, on the other hand, we need to recognize the inherent dangers of riches and the enjoyments they afford. The elite of Israel were obliviously pursuing self-indulgence and decadence, ignoring the dangers of riches, not giving a second thought to the, to the potential consequences. And I personally, I tremble at the thought, I tremble when I think of all the times, all the, all the times I've spent carelessly not giving a thought to the lordship of Christ over my spending habits, over my every dollar and dime. I tremble at, at how undiscerning I've been in my lifestyle choices. I failed, how I failed to consider the, the poor and the marginalized. I tremble at how quickly I can justify spending exorbitant amounts of money on food and clothing and drink and other creature comforts. I, I tremble. Not because money and possessions are inherently sinful, because the dangers I'm subjecting myself to when I submit them, when I pursue them. And what are the dangers? If we were to explore the entirety of Scripture, we'd find many dangers associated with riches and self-indulgence and decadence, but here we find a few in Amos 6. First, it can bring apathy toward God. The elite of Israel were consuming the best of the best in abundance but they were not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. They were not mourning their sin. They were indifferent to God's word that judgment was coming. They were so, so self-centered and so self-preoccupied that they were deaf to God's words and warnings. We saw this several weeks ago, didn't we, in Amos 4. When again again, he, he's announcing these litany of judgments that he had sent against them. And yet again and again, you did not return to me. You did not return to me. Why? Because they didn't care. As long as they got to keep on lounging, keep on eating, keep on drinking, their decadence lulled them into a spiritual slumber that numbed them to the things of God. How about us? Do you you ever feel that you're just spiritually apathetic? Ever look back on on those days when you first became a follower of Christ and remembering how on fire you were, how spiritually vital and vibrant you were? And yet those, those days seem like a distant memory. Now we yawn our way through sermons, we slouch in private prayer, give little thought to God and His glory throughout the day. We fill our conversations with trite and meaningless things, we feel little to no sorrow for sin. Perhaps self-indulgence has created a sense of apathy in you toward the things of God. Perhaps decadence has lulled your heart to sleep to a kind of spiritual slumber. But then not only can it bring apathy toward God, it also can bring apathy toward our neighbors, particularly our neighbors in need. And this was going on in Israel. Wealthy elite, we've already seen, they were simply... Overlooking the needy, begging in the streets, they trampled down the needy as as dust under their feet. Why? They were enjoying themselves and their lavish lifestyles far too much to even care. Like the rich man in Lazarus, how he ignored Lazarus in Luke 16. Riches and and decadence can so easily lead us to ignore the plight of the under-resourced and poor just such a, a dangerous place to be as Proverbs 21 13 puts it it says whoever closes his ears to the cry of the poor will himself call out to not be answered so we would do well to to ask ourselves whether or not we've we've hardened ourselves to the poor and the oppressed in this world are we so enjoying our our lavish lifestyles and our incomes our possessions our, our luxuries that the poor just seem like an inconvenience Do we pass by them in the street without a second thought? Do we write them off as those who have simply failed to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps and work hard like we have? Do we lack compassion and sympathy for them as our fellow image bearers? Decadence and self-indulgence can breed such an attitude. And not only that, it can cultivate false confidence in ourselves self-confidence. We find this in our text as well, since Israel thought themselves immune to the coming disaster, coming ruin and destruction. They felt themselves safe and secure from the coming disaster. As they put it in in verse 3, it put far the day of disaster. They were overly confident in their position. They thought that their wealth and that their military success were signs of favor from the living God, so they had no time for Amos's prophecies of doom and judgment. no time for that. And to this day, decadent wealth, possessions can bring the same sort of sense of of self-confidence, sense of security. Yet it's a false security. Jesus says, these are the things that moth and rust destroy, and thieves break in and steal. And even if you do manage to keep your wealth and possessions and creature comforts for the duration of your life, eventually death will come, and with it, judgment And then all your wealth and all your accomplishments will amount to nothing. So it really is foolish to place your confidence and to base your confidence on things that will inevitably be taken away from you. And so if decadence and and self-indulgence brings with it these, these kinds of dangers, what should we do? What should we do? Two helpful disciplines to, to, that I, I commend to you that, that guard against the dangers of decadence. First is the discipline of simplicity. The simplicity is, is a kind of middle way between being overly self-indulgent and living lives of poverty and asceticism. It means setting limits upon your lifestyle, your spending habits, your consuming habits for the sake of your own spiritual health and for the sake of the kingdom of God. Helps us guard against the dangers of decadence. G.K. Chesterton once so wisely put it, there are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. Simplicity is about desiring less, being content with less, living with less. Of course, the the parameters of of simplicity are likely going to look different for, for each of us, but while Scripture often you know, warns against the dangers of riches and decadence and commends to us lives of simplicity, it doesn't really provide a lot of specifics regarding what that might look like. Yet for most of us, it would probably be wise to be suspicious of our hearts in this matter. It's, there's wisdom in being suspicious of your own heart when it comes to setting limits on your own consuming and lifestyle habits because we're, we're so prone to justify ourselves in our sins in our over-self-indulgence. There's wisdom in asking advice from one another in Christian community, asking for accountability in your lifestyle choices and spending habits. There's wisdom pursuing lives of simplicity. But then simplicity and living beneath our means also allows for practicing another discipline which helps guard against the dangers of decadence, The, the discipline of generosity, being generous with our finances and possessions, sharing finances, sharing possessions with those in need, giving them away even. One of the best ways to fight against the, the alluring temptation of mammon is to give it away and to do so generously. And Like with simplicity, it can be really difficult to kind of nail down specifics regarding how much we should give away and when. C.S. Lewis, he was uh, kind of dealing with this question in, in Mere Christianity about considering how generous a Christian ought to be. And, and, and I think he got it right when he said, I, I don't believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those of the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our charitable expenditure excludes them. And he's right generosity can help guard us from those dangers associated with decadence. And the wealthy elite in Israel, they were not generous. They were apathetic toward God and toward their neighbor. They were wantonly living lives of self-indulgence, not caring at all. what The Lord says about the use of wealth, and because of this, the Lord says exile is coming. Judgment is coming. Doom is coming. Look for me next at the declaration of doom. And pick it back up in verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there anyone still with you? He shall say no, and he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands and the great houses shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. I know this is kind of an obscure text. It's eerie. What he's saying is, is in essence, that I'm going to deliver the city of Samaria into, a, a, into the hand of an invading nation. And the devastation is going to be so vast, even amongst the wealthy classes, that entire households are going to be killed and the death rate is going to be so extensive in Israel that they won't even be able to go through the normal funeral arrangements and mourning processes. There's going to be so many people killed. Instead, the relatives of the deceased are going to go straight from picking up corp- corpses, preparing them for burial, straight to burying them. No ceremonies, no funerals. And those who survive will actually even be afraid to mention the name of the Lord, lest they use his name wrongly and in vain and incur further wrath from the Lord. The reason for Israel's doom is their foolishness, their wickedness. He goes on to say in verse 12, the horses run on rocks. Does one plow there with oxen? The obvious answer is no, it would be foolish to have your horse run on rocks or to try to plow rocky land with an ox. And yet Israel has been that foolish since she has, he goes on to say, turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Meaning Israel has taken the very people and law of God, which he intended to be the very means of upholding his righteousness and justice in the world. He's taken that, Israel has taken that, and done what is unfathomably foolish, ignored God and turned his law and his people into bastions of injustice and wickedness. Verse 13 goes on to say, describe this this foolishness even further. He says, you who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? Apparently, Lodabar, Carnaim were foreign cities that Israel had invaded, defeated, occupied. And they even boasted about their success, but the meaning of the word Lodabar reveals what the Lord thinks about that. It, in fact, means nothingness. The Lord is saying what you rejoice in is nothing. It's a hill of beans. You've succeeded in things that don't really matter and you've failed in that which really matters, namely justice and righteousness. Because of this, Amos goes on to say, I'm going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Ereba. Day of judgment and doom is coming. And now as we saw last week, the day of judgment that Amos foretells did indeed come upon Israel. The Assyrian army invaded, destroyed, occupied the nation of Israel. And yet this day of judgment and doom is actually meant to foreshadow for us the ultimate day of judgment. The day when Christ Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Israel was not the only one for whom these these chickens are going to come home to roost. For all of us, we're one day going to have to to stand before the living God and give an account for our lives, for our thoughts, for our words, for our actions, for our spending habits and saving habits and giving habits, for our lifestyle choices. We're going to have to stand before the living God and give an account. And part of what it means to be a Christian then is to live always in the shadow of that coming day. To live always with that day in mind, to seek to live every single day with the aim of hearing the Lord Jesus say on that day, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. As Martin Luther once so aptly put it, he said, there are two days on my calendar, today and that day. So part of what I want to ask you this morning, Veritas, is this, how often do you think of that day? How often do you think of the coming judgment? Does it ever cross your mind? Because I fear that, that part of the reason we might sometimes be prone to, to drift into lifestyles of, of decadence, ignoring the dangers, is because we give so little thought to the coming age and think so much about this present age. And that will inevitably produce, my friends, a shallow and apathetic Christianity. It is a shallow and apathetic Christianity that thinks so little about the world to come and so much about this one. And so if I may be so bold as to exhort you, as followers of Christ, we must regularly set aside time to think on, to meditate on, to consider the coming judgment. Set aside intentional time in which you remember that you're going to have to give an account for your life to the living God. It would be good to consider that when you wake up in the morning. Beginning your day with such considerations really has a way of redirecting your attention from things that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things to those things that matter truly and eternally. It would be wise for us to wake up in the morning to look at texts like John 12 48, 2 Corinthians 5 10, Hebrews 9 27, Revelation 20 11 through 15, to read these kinds of texts, consider what they're saying, and that what they're saying applies to us personally. And one day we're going to have to stand before the living God. One day we're going to have to give it account then we must not only consider the the coming judgment in these more formal kind of devotional times. We must consider it throughout our days in the normalcy and ordinariness of our everyday lives. We make lifestyle decisions. We should consider the the coming judgment when making lifestyle decisions, when creating budgets, when considering whether or not we're going to buy houses or cars or clothing or whatever else even those everyday purchases, like the the coffee on the way to work or the meal out as a family. should consider that one day we won't just give an account for our lives generally, but specifically in the nitty-gritty details of our lives. They matter. That's not to say you don't buy the house or the car or the clothing or whatever. It's not to say that, that we will make this budget our amount or this other amount or forego the coffee on the on the way to work we're not saying that we'll forego those things but it is to say that we want to live in a way that puts finances possessions purchases and proper perspective as it relates to the lordship of jesus christ and the eternal weight of glory that we'll see on that day it is to say that consistent with what we declared in baptism We're withholding nothing in our lives from the lordship and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Not even our wallets. We give everything we are and everything we have to him that we might know him and follow him. We lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely that we might know him and have eternal fellowship with him. And how could we not? especially when we consider what it is He gave up to have the same with us. When we consider that He's the one who enjoyed the luxury of heavenly bliss in eternity past, and yet He left the perfections and pleasures of heaven to come and to give Himself for us and for our salvation. And in giving himself, he gave all. He took on the form of a lowly servant and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He gave himself wholly, completely, entirely for us and for our salvation. How could we then hold anything back from him? How could we then hold anything back from him when he's given everything for us? And then not only that, he rose on the third day, he rose on the third day to break the power of canceled sin in our lives. To break the power of the love of money and things. To break the hold that materialism might have on our lives. To usher in the age of the new creation. And to show us that there's more to live for than the pleasures and luxuries of this, pleasant, this present age. There's more to be enjoyed in the life and age to come, and so we can live simply, we can go without, we can live generously now, in anticipation of the age to come, knowing that there is a reward kept safe for us in heaven, and if we truly belong to Christ, that's indeed, that's what we're living for, life with him in the age to come. A life which makes the pleasures and luxuries of this present age look like refuse and rubbish. A life of true and eternal pleasure, the pleasure of knowing and enjoying God forever and ever. That's what we have to look forward to. And so let us lay lay aside the the decadence with all its dangers. Let us be wary of lifestyles of self-indulgence and let us always live in the shadow of that day to come. The coming judgment should wake us up to the dangers of self-indulgence. Let's pray. Father, would you awaken us by the power and presence of your Spirit to flee sin And to even flee the temptation to sin, to flee the dangerous lifestyles of decadence and self-indulgence, and to embrace Christ-centered contentment and simplicity and generosity for the sake of your glory and the multiplication of your kingdom. Glorify yourself in Veritas as we give ourselves wholly to you in response to Christ giving himself wholly to us. We pray in his name. Amen.